Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Dr. Slade. Dr. Slade received his PhD from Ohio State University prior to working as a therapist for 22 years before shifting gears to become a life coach. As a life coach, Dr. Slade has developed a Become Healthy and Happy program designed to help you find happiness within relationships with yourself and others. Dr. Slade, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been <clears throat> been a good day so far, and, and I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited as well. I want you to tell us a little bit more about the Become Healthy and Happy program. Um, yeah, I, so I, I went to school for 10 years. Um, my, my PhD is in, my, my master's degree is in marriage family therapy, and my PhD is in human development and family science. And, um, and so I, I studied a lot and became, you know, deeply familiar with the, the science of relationships and, and what it takes to be healthy. And then, um, you know, I've been helping people um, one-on-one for 25 years now, either as a therapist or as a coach. And, um, and I feel, <clears throat> I feel really fortunate to have been able to learn the things that I've been able to learn. And, you know, I, I believe, you know, I've, I've worked with thousands of people across the years and I, and I really believe that most people are, are really interested and, and desirous to be, to be healthy and happy um, and our brains are eager to, uh, to, to respond to efforts, but, um, we can only use the tools that we have. And, and so, um, there's a lot of opinion and, and frankly, there's a lot of bad advice and, and a lot of bad thoughts that are, that are in the, um, self-help world. And, um, and so I, I really, um, wanted to be able to, to create a system and a, and a program to be able to, to get good science into people's hands, because we know, we know what it takes. We know what it takes to have a healthy relationship. We know what it takes to, to be healthy. And um, it's not, it, it's not uh, magic. You know, it, it's not something that you either get or you don't get. Um, and, and so I, I wanted and want to be able to, to get good stuff into more people's hands. I absolutely admire that. We don't know what we don't know. Right. And in today's world, there's a lot of things that seem healthy that really aren't. And we don't always know where that line is. So having someone who can provide the science, the facts, the information, and not only provide it, but guide us through it. And in this program, you have seven principles. So I would love to go through those principles with you and how they relate to our mental health. So the first one is resource management. Yep. And each of these seven are, are put in a particular sequence and, and the program builds on, on itself um, with the, the subsequent principles being most effectively obtained by incorporating the first ones. And so we start with resource management because th- there's a simple, a simple fact that, that you can't give what you don't have. And, and there are lots of drains and um, withdrawals that, that take place in our lives um, from little things like, you know, I, I can't find the shirt that I want to wear to, you know, I, I might lose my job or 
be diagnosed with cancer or, you know, huge life altering events. And, and all of those things consume resources and, um, and doing anything consumes resources. And so we, we start by helping people learn how to, how to take control of the, of both the, the deposits um, or what I call fillers. Fillers are things that, that give us energy and leave us better off. Um, and also begin to take control over some of the drains and, and to repair or eliminate some of the drains that, that are reparable and learn how to more effectively cope with those that are not. Without having the resources, it is so hard. And like you said, there are so many stressors and things that can happen. And when something happens and you have very limited information and no resources, we fall apart that stress becomes overwhelming and stress leads to feeling down, getting sick. It weakens your immune system and it ultimately weakens your mental health. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and you, you, you hit on kind of a cool concept because um, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about a lot is the importance of a healthy daily routine, doing things day in and day out that, that fill us up and give us resources and, and when the, the concept that I use is the emotional reservoir and, and when, when your personal reservoir is full, then you enter those sticky moments with some momentum. And, and if you enter a sticky moment with some momentum, you typically make it through that sticky moment without getting bogged down. But if you enter those sticky moments, which you can't get rid of, I mean, you, life is messy and it's difficult. And if you enter those moments with no momentum, then we get stuck. We sink into depression or anxiety or, or other health problems. And so by maintaining a healthy daily routine, we, it keeps momentum going and helps us not get um, stuck in those, in those difficult moments. It's like Newton's first law of motion. What is in motion <laughs> stays in motion. Yes. But now let's jump into the second principle, which is attachment. Um, attachment theory is a, is a theory of human development that helps us understand and explain how, how the intimate relationships in our lives work. And um, the primary component or tenet of attachment theory is what's called a secure base. And a secure base is um, the feeling that somebody's there for you. There's, there's somebody in your corner. And so, you know, if, if the whole world's against you, I know that you're in my corner. You're there for me. You're rooting for me. The definition of a, of a secure base is a safe haven to go to and a solid foundation to launch from. You know, we, we develop right, right from birth. We develop by explo exploring our environments. And it's super easy to see in, in toddlers and little kids, you know, their, their exploration is physical. They're putting things in their mouths, they're climbing on things, they're bumping into things. And it's through a physical exploration of their environments that, that they develop skills. And as we age, our, our exploration becomes largely cognitive. And in adulthood, we're exploring ideas and theories and beliefs and values, but it's still through exploration that we develop. And in order to be able to, to explore, we have to be organized emotionally. When we become disorganized emotionally, exploration stops. Attachment um, is, is super duper important. Every, every one of us has two primary needs. The first is, 
is self-worth, which our brains assess is, do I matter? Do I matter to those to whom I should matter? And the second one is a sense of love and belonging. And our brains assess that as, am I safe? Am I emotionally safe with those with whom I should be safe? And attachment theory really helps us understand how that works and, and how to get reorganized and, and therefore on with development um, when we become disorganized emotionally. The research also shows that there's nothing that works more effectively to, to help us get reorganized than a healthy attachment relationship. I would like to explore healthy attachment versus an unhealthy attachment. Okay. So when we first connected, I told you my story. And the big piece of it was having these like huge attachments to my grandfather and to my uncle. And when those attachments were disconnected, I didn't know how to live anymore. So how do we learn where that line is of a healthy attachment and when we need to recognize that it's unhealthy and push back towards a healthy attachment? That's a good question. Um, so, so attachment style is, um, is a belief system about those two, those two important variables. Um, and so attachment style becomes this filter, this paradigm, this belief system about relationships and, and in particular intimate relationships in our lives. And, um, and a secure attachment style develops when there's a history of sensitivity and availability in those primary attachment relationships. And so somebody with a secure attachment style believes that, they're, that they matter and that they're going to matter to the important people in their lives. And the second thing is that they expect sensitivity and availability. So secure people enter attachment relationships fairly easily. They open up fairly easily. They trust fairly easily. And they tend to be surprised when somebody doesn't respond well to them because you're breaking the rules. That's not how it's supposed to be. And so when you have healthy attachments, like, like I think you had with your grandfather, so and if you contrast that to, a, to an unhealthy attachment style, and there, there are three main attachment styles. There's secure, there's avoidant, and then there's either anxious or ambivalent or preoccupied, different names for, for the same one. And, and an avoidant attachment style develops when there's a history of unavailability and insensitivity. And so the, the individual learns that he or she is not going to matter. They, they expect not to matter to the important people in their lives. And they also expect lack of sensitivity and availability. So avoidant people build walls. They're very slow to warm up. Um, they, they, they don't let people in very easily. And, and then a preoccupied or an ambivalent attachment style develops when there's an inconsistent history. Sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're sensitive and sometimes you're not. And so the preoccupied individual isn't able to, to establish a consolidated belief system about, about mattering and about what to expect from, from the important people in their lives. And so they, they end up in this, in this kind of no man's land where they're, they're constantly seeking atta attachment relationships, but continuously doubting. They don't trust them. And so, so they're always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
and an attachment style is so important, kind of like what I was alluding to, because they determine how we engage in future relationships. And so if I'm, if I'm avoidant, then, then this is how I engage with you. And I, I want to matter to you and I want to feel safe with you, but I don't believe I'm going to. So I don't let you in. Well, if you're trying to connect with me and this is what you're getting, how does that feel? Yeah. It feels horrible, right? Yeah. It feels horrible. And so if you're healthy and this is what you're being met with, what are you going to do? First, you're going to probably try to break through that. let, Let me in. Why are, you know, hey, you can trust me. Hey, you know, why, why don't you let me in? And, and if I keep responding like this, then if you're healthy, sooner or later, you're going to leave because you're not going to be willing to stay in an unhealthy relationship if you're healthy. And when you leave, what's my brain going to say? Well, of course she left. Everybody leaves me. Well, why did you leave? Did you leave because you were unwilling to be there for me? And were you, did you leave because you were unwilling to have me matter to you? Or did you believe, or did you leave because this is what you were met with? Fact is, I don't know because I didn't give you a chance. But those interactions then reinforce my belief system that relationships can't be trusted and that um, people aren't safe. And so we continue to get exactly what we expect out of relationships because we continue to show up and engage in ways that almost guarantee that we're going to get what we expect. Where do these attachment styles come from? Is it something that we just are born with or is it something that triggers it? Yeah, so so the attachment process is pretty simple. When, when we get disorganized emotionally, and, and that can be, you know, I'm scared, I'm afraid, I'm embarrassed, I'm sad, um, I'm anxious, whatever, um, that activates the attachment system. And what that's supposed to trigger is what little kids do naturally. When that happens, that's supposed to trigger us turning toward our primary attachment figure. And then if they respond with sensitivity and availability, which, are the, which is the way that you establish and maintain a secure base, do I have access to you when I'm in need? And do you respond sensitively to me when I'm in need? And so if I vulnerably turn to you and you respond with sensitivity and availability, excuse me, then I get reorganized emotionally and I return to exploration. Um, so that process plays out tens of times every single day during those first three years of life. Wow. And so that the way that the brain gets wired is a co-creative process that occurs between the infant and his or her caregivers. And so as the infant and then toddler turns toward the attachment figure, how he or she responds wires that attachment style. It creates a pattern of sensitivity and availability that then creates the attachment style or belief system of whether or not we expect to matter and to be safe in those attachment relationships. So it's our early relationships that really dictate 
our attachment style and our relationships later on. How could somebody recognize I am putting up a wall and I'm not being vulnerable? I'm assuming they're going to leave and then recognize it and make steps to change. Yeah, that's that's the that's the million dollar question, right? Because um, the the research shows that so attachment style gets set by age three, and for most people, it never changes for the rest of their lives because of what we were just talking about. It doesn't change because we continue to interact in ways that reinforce it. Um, and the cool thing about the brain is that you can rewire it. And you absolutely can rewire and change your attachment style. But in terms of, of, um, of recognizing it, you can do a couple of different things there. You can just pay attention. In, in relationships, and, and especially close relationships, it's, there, there are different rules for most of us in terms of like acquaintances or friends or, or even siblings and those kinds of things versus a, a, attachment is really what happens in the primary um, attachment relationships in our lives. Um, and so you can pay attention. When I get disorganized emotionally, what do I do? Do I open up? Do I vulnerably turn towards somebody? Um, or do I, do I withdraw and hope they pursue me? Um, do I try to intimidate and hope they'll respond? Um, you know, do I, do I just go inside? Do I go to somebody else because I don't trust that they're going to, you know, so you can look at how you respond when you're disorganized emotionally, you can also look at how you react when, when people turn toward you. And, and then you can start to get a feel, you know, is my, is my attachment style secure? Do I expect people to show up for me? Do I expect to matter? Um, do I expect them not to? Do I not trust? Do I not trust that I'm going to be safe? Um, or, or do I not know what to expect? You know, do I find myself always looking but never trusting? And you can start to get a feel for that. And then once you're aware, then you can start taking te- steps to rewire it. Attachment style seems to be one of the most important things that we don't realize because how we connect to humans is everything. That's what we all crave is human connection. Uh, Fran, it's everything. <laughs> it's, it, is. it really is. It's, it's huge. Let's jump over to the third principle, neurology. Neurology made easy is the third principle. Um, this is really important because um, there's, you know, our brains are an important part of, of our functioning and our, and our health and understanding uh, how our brains work neurologically is, is really important. The things that we go over during this, during this module or this principle, we, we talk about neurotransmitters. Um, neurotransmitters are like, like dopamine and serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA. Um, we talk about what it takes to, to produce those neurotransmitters, um, moderate exercise, healthy nutrition, and adequate sleep are the building blocks that our brains use to produce neurotransmitters. And then we also talk about the neurotransmission process. Um, and then one of the main things we talk about in this module is is the upper and lower brain and um, the window of tolerance and what it takes to be able to stay. You know, we, we share our lower brain with all other mammals and reptiles. Um, what, what makes us different are, is the, the, the top half of our brain. Our, our frontal lobes in particular make us different from all other animal life on, on the earth. 
And, um, and when we become emotionally flooded, the amygdala, I don't know how much detail you want, but the amygdala takes over and, and it pulls us out of our frontal lobes. And then we're, we're reacting from fight, flight, or freeze and nothing good comes of that. And so we, we, we talk a lot about what it takes to, to be able to stay in your upper brain and, and how to regulate the, the neuro, the neurotransmission process and those kinds of things. So my first question is if the frontal part of the brain is where the upper part is what makes us different from like reptiles and other animals, does that mean those of us under 25 aren't there yet? Yes, it does. It's me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, that's where, uh, that's where impulse control reasoning, uh, you know, delayed gratification, all of those, all of those things aren't fully developed um, until the frontal lobes are, are finished. And so that's why you see a lot of people during adolescence and early adulthood um, making a lot of stupid decisions because um, that part of their brains isn't developed yet. So how can someone who is younger, who hasn't gotten to that point where the frontal lobe is fully developed, learn how to balance these chemicals, how to take care of their brains, how to have that impulse control? Yeah, good, good question there too. Um, so part of it is, is learning, I mean, just kind of like what we're talking about right now, getting a basic understanding of, of how the brain works and, um, and then also developing skills. Uh, partnerships, you know, are, are also really helpful. When, when, when we can't, when healthy, um, when healthy behaviors or thoughts aren't, what come naturally to us, um, then we can develop a skill, a process, or a partnership to help us do what we need to do to be healthy, but what we don't naturally do. And so having a partnership, having help, um, you know, having some, some reflection to help us gauge whether or not we're, we're making good decisions and we're, because so many of the huge decisions in our lives where we go to school, what we study, many times who we marry, um, you know, so many huge life decisions are made during that early period of life when our brains aren't even finished developing. And so, so having help um, that you can trust is, is a, really, a really great place to begin. Um, and then there, there are lots of different things that you can do to manage that but that's a that's a good place to start thank you for sharing that and I really want to go back to when you talked about nutrition and sleep and how important those are for your brain to develop those serotonin levels so when it comes to proper nutrition what does that look like I think everyone has this different idea of what eating healthy is and eating right yeah there's so much noise out there around um, nutrition. Now, there's a ton of research that shows that our brains know what to do with real food. And so starting with lots of real food, if it's in a package, stay away from it. If So one of the things that I have my clients start with is, is to start w- by eating at least five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Just start by eating real food, making sure you're getting good protein, um, and then and that's a great place to start. 
we tend to go towards those processed foods that are quick and easy to warm up and just put together. And we don't realize how whole foods are so important. Um, I was telling you before about one of the books I read called Non-Toxic, A Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. And it talked about how in the early diet of humans were these whole foods. They weren't super high in, well, there wasn't processed stuff back then. Right. They were low in sodium. They were high in magnesium. They had nutrient-filled carbs, carbohydrates. It was so different than today's world where a lot of our food is pumped with antibiotics and um, growth-stimulating hormones, how the pesticides used in our foods, the gardening, there's just so much that's different and we can't continue to assume that everything is safe and that we can just eat something because it is put on the shelf. Paying attention to what you're putting in your body is huge. It is. And it's, you know, it's trends, trends come and go too. And, um, and even like, you know, what the FDA recommends or, um, you know, different levels, it, it can be really confusing. Um, but if you just, you know, if you remember that the brain is an organ and, um, and it, it knows what to do with natural things and it doesn't know what to do with chemicals. It, chemicals are, are foreign. And so the brain doesn't know what to do with them. Do I store this? Do I try to get rid of it? You know, what, what do I do? And so um, our brains know what to do with real food. That brings us into a good segue for the next principle, rewire your brain. Yeah. Yep. The fourth module is rewiring the brain, the powerful section, because um, kind of back to what we were saying before, a lot of us feel really powerless. And um, when most of what we do, we do trying to regulate our emotions. You know, we, we do the things that we think are going to make us feel the way we want. We don't do the things that we think are going to make us feel the way we don't want. And to a very large extent, how we feel at any given moment is a function of how we're interpreting what's going on. So if I say to you, hey, Fran, um, your hair looks nice today. How do you interpret that? What are some different ways or some different meanings or interpretations that you could assign that? That, I don't know, that... I'm presented well today, that I don't look like a mess, that I am, that I look okay today, that helps me feel more confident in the way I look. My hair is my best feature, so it makes me really happy when someone compliments it. Like those would be the main two. That was a good example. (laughs) Yeah. So, so those are, those are some good interpretations. If you think I'm giving you a sincere compliment, you're going, how, how would you feel? Really good. I hope it's sincere. Yeah, you'd feel good. And then you might respond by complimenting me. Um, you might wear your hair like that more often. Um, you know, you'd respond based on, we respond based on how we feel. Um, if you thought that I was being sarcastic, if that's the meaning that you thought, oh, Denim or Dr. Slate is, is being sarcastic, how would that make you feel? Oh, I would be devastated. Right. You would feel very differently if you assigned that meaning versus he's given me a sincere compliment. And so the way that we feel at any given time is hugely a function of how we're thinking about the things that are going on in our lives. And we respond based on how we feel. 
And, um, and so another, another key component that ties into this is the fact that we as human beings have the ability to command our thoughts. If I say to you, I want you to think about an apple, what's in your brain? An apple? Yeah. Or I want you to think about a white car. You can do that, right? But if I said to you, Fran, I want you to be sad. Hurry up and be sad. Could you do that? No, I don't think I could. No. Or if I said, I want you to be embarrassed. Hurry and be embarrassed. Could you do that? No. No. If you wanted to be embarrassed right now, which you wouldn't want to do, but if you wanted to feel embarrassed right now, what would you have to do? I would probably have to do something silly. Yeah, you would either have to think of a time when you were embarrassed or do something that would be embarrassing to you, right? And that's, that's a really important difference. We don't have the ability to command our feelings. Our feelings flow from our thoughts, but we do have the ability to command our thoughts. You can think about an apple. You can think about a white car. You can think about a beautiful sunset. You, you have the ability to direct your brain if you will direct it. And by directing your brain and con- taking control of the interpretations that you assign things, you subsequently take control of how you feel. And so in that fourth module on rewiring the brain, we go into, in depth into how to, how to do that, how to rewire the brain, um, the role that core beliefs um, conditional assumptions and automatic thoughts play so that's what we do there i love that first of all you aren't in control of your emotions you don't command them your thoughts influence your emotions so learning how to control not control but command your thoughts and give yourself something to think about and thinking more of positive experiences versus focusing on the negative experiences, noticing you're thinking one way and changing it, reframing it. It is rewiring your brain and changing the way that you are experiencing the emotions. And I never thought about it that way. When we talk about mental health or when we talk about children having breakdowns or people experiencing mental health crises, we look at it and we're like, they're happy. Just be happy. You can't just make the emotion appear right and people feel so overwhelmed by that I know that's something that I always felt overwhelmed I'm like I can't just feel happy if I could if I could just feel happy right now I would right you brought up such an amazing point that we don't have to force ourselves to feel some way we work on our thoughts and what we're thinking about that is mind blown I love that well and one can I point out one more quick thing here yes um One of the things that amazes me every single day in my office is the fact that we almost always get exactly what we expect. We, and we kind of referenced it earlier, but we, we engage in ways that get us exactly what we expect. And it's, it's almost eerie. It's, it's, it's crazy how consistent it is. We, we attract, we manifest, you know, whatever you want to call it, but we almost always get what we expect. And so if we, if we're moving through our lives with unhealthy core beliefs, if we think, you know, I, I'm a failure, uh, I'm not good enough. Um, people don't like me. Um, 
those kinds of core beliefs, we end up engaging in ways that, that end up getting us data that reinforces those beliefs. Yeah. And, and so by taking control of where our brains go and taking control of the beliefs that we have, then we can rewire, we can rewire those core beliefs and begin attracting and manifesting different results in our lives. It's super powerful. That is absolutely incredible and insightful because it's so true when I feel like I'm not good enough and I'm telling myself that over and over again, I'm waiting for someone to be disappointed by something just so I can prove it back to myself that I was right, that I wasn't good enough or waiting for a bad grade on an exam or to burn something in the kitchen, just something small to reaffirm that I'm not good enough. I'm messing up. I'm not perfect. This isn't okay. Something's wrong with me. It reinforces those beliefs. And, and we tend to, we tend to um, reinterpret discrepant data um, in a way that doesn't challenge our core beliefs. So just as an example, if I believe that um, nothing goes well for me, well, if I apply for a job and I don't get that job, my brain doesn't have any problem accepting that because that's what I expect. Yeah, nothing goes well for me. But if I apply for a job and I get the job or I get promoted, now I have a problem, right? I have this belief and now I have this data in my life that is incongruent with this belief. And unfortunately, what we normally do is to squish the, the data into something that doesn't challenge the belief. So I might say, well, okay, so they hired me, but the, as soon as they figure out that I'm no good, they're going to let me go. Or, okay, so they promoted me, but that was just because they didn't have anybody else. You know, so we reinterpret it in a way that safeguards our cognitive distortions or our, or our dysfunctional beliefs. So is this where imposter syndrome comes from? It certainly can. It's, it's, a, it's a part of that, you know, not, not feeling like, you know, who am I to, to be able to to be doing this or to be out there. And, and as soon as they know, and as soon as they find out, they're going to think that I'm a loser, you know, or they're going to think that I'm whatever the, whatever the belief is. So certainly ties into that. That is, that is really interesting because we all have these insecurities and we all go through these phases and days where we just have these thoughts of how we're not good enough of why someone chose us why something good happened it couldn't have been because we are doing good so it must have been because of something else we all go through that and we don't realize how we are actually wiring our brain to assume that we're not good enough right so it's powerful it is so let's jump into the fifth one conflict resolution yeah learning how to fight well is is one of the most important aspects of a healthy relationship um you have to be able to resolve conflict in order to be close and connected. Unless you married yourself, you're, you're going to have problems. You're going to have different points of view. You're going to have hurt feelings. You're going to have different priorities. Conflict is, is one of the things that makes a relationship important. And one of the things that create intimacy in a relationship as we effectively work through our problems with each other. And so learning to learning to fight well or learning to resolve conflict effectively 
is a really important part of being healthy and happy. And I've, I've, I've developed this um, approach. I, I call it CPR um, for, for your relationship. And it's um, because effectively resolving conflict really does resuscitate a relationship. And, and it's an acronym. The C stands for communicate. The P stands for protect and preserve attachment. And the R stands for receive. And so the process of communicating is the process of getting a message from one person to another person. And, and the more intact that message is when it gets from one person to another, the more effectively we've communicated. And both people have a responsibility in that, right? If I'm the presenter, I have a responsibility of getting the entirety of that message to you. And if you're the receiver, you have a responsibility to receive all of that message. And so we go through how, how to do that, how to communicate well, how to get your, your message across in an effective way, and then how to protect attachment in that. Because even in the midst of conflict, it's important to make sure that you're differentiating between a problem and the person, you know, and, and, and being very overt that, friend, this is about this issue it's not about my love for you. It's not about how I feel about you. It's about this issue. And, and you still matter to me, even though we have this problem. Really important. And then the R is receive. Um, and that's how to receive all of the message. And when, when you're the listener, um, you know, there, there, it's, it's really important to recognize that, that there are three levels of listening. Um, there's listening to respond, which is what most of us do. And so as you're talking, my brain is already going into my defense and my side and, um, and how, to, how to respond to what you're saying. So I'm not really listening at all. And then the next level is listening to understand, which sounds really good. I mean, that's good if I'm trying to understand what you're saying. <clears throat> the problem with that is, what do I do as soon as I think I understand? I stop listening. I've got it. And I stop listening and I'm ready to share my side. Well, I almost certainly am going to think that I understand before you feel understood. So the highest level of understanding and what I try to help people do there is to listen, to help the other feel understood. I love that. So that's, that's the, the, the CPR of conflict resolution. That is an amazing acronym. When it comes to conflict, we're kind of taught at a young age to avoid it. Don't fight with people. We tend to kind of make friends that are the same as us, similar to us, same ideas, same beliefs. And then we start encountering people who have something different or something happens and we don't agree or someone forgets to take out the trash, something so small yet it turns into a big problem because we were never taught how to listen. We were never taught how to respond. We were always taught to just avoid it. Right. So you don't develop those skills. Exactly. And, wow. and so, and, and I, I think, I don't think there's a, I, I doubt there's a person alive who um, hasn't experienced the, the difficulty of resolving conflict. And, and it's like anything else. There are skills um, that work. And when we learn those skills and practice them and incorporate them into our relationships, then, then we're able to do that well. 
And I can understand how you feel without agreeing with it and without feeling the same. <clears throat> I might feel very differently. Again, where are my feelings coming from? They're coming from how I'm thinking about it. Where are your feelings coming from? They're coming from how you're thinking about it. And so by processing and understanding that, it enables us to be able to, to resolve the issues. That is absolutely amazing. No one ever talks about conflict resolution and conversations this way. But now let's jump over to the sixth one, personality. Um, yeah, this is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, <clears throat> I've, and you and I talked a little about this before, but I've always been really interested in, in personality. I, uh, I've, I've been really interested in what makes people tick and, um, and what makes us different. And, <clears throat> and across the years, I've been exposed to lots of different personality profiling systems. And there are some good ones out there. Um, but my experience had been that most of them were either too complicated, um, or, or, or missing some components from what I was seeing in my, in my work with people. And, um, and so about nine years ago now, I, um, I decided to start collecting data and, um, and I, I spent about three years collecting qualitative data. And then I spent about 18 months analyzing that data and I've developed my own, um, my own model. It's called core. And, um, and it is a, it's a combination of a temperament and personality model. Um, and what I'm, what core really gets at and what I'm really interested in is the underlying reasons why we do the things that we do. You know, personality has been studied for years and it's been shown to not change. You know, you can change a lot of things. You can change how you behave. You can change how you think. You can change how you interpret something, which then you can change how you feel. But you can't change your temperament. Um, every, every child comes into life with a temperament. And there, there are actually nine different variables, temperament variables that have been identified in the literature and, and these temperament variables combine in different forms and, um, and create your primary temperament. And then as we go through um, that interactive process with our caregivers, as our brains get wired, our, our secondary temperaments or, or personality types get wired. And so I conceptualize temperament as, temperament as the, the part that comes with you into life. And personality as the combination of nature and nurture. Nature being um, your environmental, I'm sorry, nature being your innate genetic disposition that you come in with and nurture being the environmental influences um, that are at play. And so CORE is an acronym that um, represents the model. So what are the different pieces of core? What does it stand for? So C stands for comfort and connection. And C's are motivated by being comfortable. They want comfortable clothes, comfortable furniture, um, comfortable emotional environment. They, they're very willing to fuss over details to make something comfortable. Um, if a C is going to watch a movie, they're not just going to pop in the movie and sit down. They're going to pop their popcorn. They're going to get in their favorite jammies. They're going to get their favorite little 
um, blanky, and they're they're gonna they're they're very willing to fuss over details in order in order to make something comfortable. Um, C's are um, very good at making connections between and among things. The the C brain connects everything. Something way over here might be connected to something way over here via 15 different things. And, um, and so, so C's are, are really good at making connections, but that process takes time. And so a lot of times C's aren't very good in the heat of the moment, like in an argument or something, um, because their brain needs time to make all those connections. So a lot of times when I'm working with a C, I'll ask them a question and they'll kind of look at me like a deer in the headlights. Um, and then later that day, they'll send me a text or an email and they will have incorporated everything we've ever talked about. Um, C's are very sensitive. They, they almost have a sixth sense when it comes to feelings. Um, you know, some people can hear things that other people can't, or some people can smell things that other people can't. C's can feel things that other people aren't feeling. So a C goes into a room and it's like this fire hydrant of emotions that they feel swirling around them. Um, and that can be overwhelming to a C. Um, C's really like to, to have time and space. They like to flow through their day. So they, they typically give plenty of time to, to move from one thing to the next. Um, so that's, that's the C. Um, o stands for optimism. And O's are motivated by fun. Um, it's really important for O's to be enjoying themselves. They are the only one of the four types that lives in the present. And it's, it's super important that O's be enjoying the present moment. They love the process of wrapping their brains around things and understanding things. Um, they see the potential and the and the, the um I guess, potential in, in almost anybody or anything. And um, so they're very optimistic. Uh, O's are the most people-oriented of the types. Um, O's tend to feel pressure to make sure that everybody's having a good time. Um, it's really important to O's that people think well of them, that they like them. Um, O's have a, have a real fear of missing out. FOMO is a very strong thing for an O. Um, you want to torture an O, give them two really fun options. Um, it'll be really hard for them to decide. And then whatever they do decide the whole time they're doing the other, they'll be wondering if they should have been doing the other thing. Um, boredom is also a huge variable with, with O's. They hate the thought of being bored. So they have a hard time planning because they don't want to, they don't want to commit to something and then when they get there, not want to do it. So, you know, what do you want to do next summer? <clears throat> what do you want to do for Christmas? <clears throat> um, what do you want for dinner tonight? Um, all those things can be like, well, I don't know. Right now, nothing sounds good to me. Always like to wait until they're in the moment and then decide what they want to do. I want to say that when, so I took the test, as you know, and I made my mom take it too. And she got, oh. And now I really understand why she is that person. It frustrates me. I'm like, what do you want to do for dinner? And she's like, I don't know. Nothing sounds good. I'm like, 
What do you mean nothing sounds good? Because I always know. I know days in advance what I'm going to eat for dinner. Right. My mom's like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Right. Yeah. And and that's, and that's actually a really, really good example of, of why I think core is so important because when you understand why somebody's doing the things that they're doing, it's a total game changer because we tend to think that people do things for the same reasons that we would do them. And so you're looking at your mom and you're an E, which we haven't got to yet, but in your E brain, you're like, what do you mean you don't know? How can you not know? Um, that's irresponsible. You know, that's, that's lack of planning. And, but if you understand how her brain works, then it makes much more sense. Exactly. And even like the other day, so it's November when we're recording this and for two weeks, I've been asking my mom, do you want to do this for Thanksgiving? Do you want to do this? She decided last night. I was like, pretty good. Well, she's still a week out. That's pretty good. She's a week out. But like, to me, I was like, why haven't we thought about this? Right. I'm so, so it's really nice to see that we all have different personalities and different ideas and things are going to happen differently. And it's not because she's trying to drive me crazy. It's just how her brain is wired and that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's uh, yeah. And that, and that really is the, the, a really important point too with this is that every every temperament type brings really important things to society. C's bring thoughtfulness. They bring comfort. They bring sensitivity. Things that are really valuable. O's bring optimism. They bring hope. They they bring um, fun. R stands for resolution, and R's are motivated by getting things done. They're list makers. Um, they like to have several things moving forward at once. Um, they they are the propulsion in our society. Ours are very intense, and their intensity is like a stick of dynamite. It flares up and out quickly. So they're really good at creating movement. Um, ours natural tendency is to meet resistance with resistance. You push against an R. And they're going to push back and up with equal or greater resistance. Um, and and the, resi- the, the resolution piece is an interesting one. It's not like ours, a, a true R doesn't do something and then like say, oh, that is such a cool thing that I did. Look at that finished product. That would be more like an E. When, when something is unresolved, it creates emotional stress for the R. Lost keys. The lost TV remote or a lost phone will drive an R crazy. And when they, when they resolve it, it resolves that emotional stress. And so it's really frustrating if an R can't create movement. So if they're going over here and they run into something that, that they can't move, they like to jump over to something that they can move. Um, R's are the only temperament type that live in the future. They're constantly thinking about what's coming next. And, and they like to be ahead. So by the time an event arrives, the R brain is already on to whatever's next. Um, whatever an R is thinking about takes up the entire screen. Um, it's all they've ever felt. It's all they're ever going to feel unless you just wait three minutes and then something else will be all they've ever felt and all they're ever going to feel. So ours are, ours are super intense. They feel passionately. Um, sometimes you can feel 
run over by an R because they're, they're focused on where they're going. And if you happen to be in between them and where they're going, they might run over you without even realizing that they've done it. So that's the R. And so R's bring movement to society. They get things done, which is super important. The last letter is E. Um, and E stands for exactness. And E's are motivated by perfecting things. E's, E's live in the past in that they naturally look at what has happened and see how it could have been better. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a conversation. It could be the laundry. It could be a homework assignment. It could be a kiss. It could be whatever. The, the e-brain naturally looks at what has happened and sees how it could be better. Um, E's think through things really thoroughly and they settle on the best way to do something. <clears throat> and E's have a lot of confidence in the conclusions that they draw. If you disagree with an E, the tendency is for them to think that you're wrong. And it's not, it's not necessarily that you're stupid or that I know better than you. It's if you had this little piece of data or if you knew what I knew, you would also land on this, on this conclusion because it's, it's obviously the right conclusion. Um, E's are, are totally willing to slog through hassle in order to do something right. So they bring quality, little things like an E might buy four pairs of shoes to make sure that they get the right one. And it's totally worth the hassle of returning the other three to get the best one. Well, an R or an O would never do that because they don't want the hassle of it. But an E is totally willing to slog through, um, to swim upstream, cut cross grain in order to do something the right way. So first of all, I have to say my parents are going to love you because I understand them now. My mom, as I said, is an O and my dad is an R. So mm -hmm. he wants to jump ship all the time. We're working on something. He's like, work on this, do this. 10 minutes later, he is 10 steps ahead in a completely different area. Right. I'm oh, like, where yeah. did you go? And I yeah. am at E. So I am still at that point where I am writing down every single possible scenario, what to do, looking at it from every single perspective. The way I prepare for an exam is insane. I have like the hundreds of handwritten notes on every possible way the teacher could take a topic. I'm the one who sends it out to the class because I'm like, I put so much into this. I had a teacher mark me one point off one time and I argued for 20 minutes in the middle of class before she gave in yeah. and was like, okay, Man. you're right. Um, Man, have your point. <laughs> she's like, a 99 isn't really that big of a video, but yes, it right. was. And that's, that's a perfect example of, of how the e-brain works. And, and so they bring quality. They, they bring um, ease, ease like to perfect and duplicate. They're very process oriented. They want to figure out the best way and then they want to duplicate that best way. And so they're, they're uh, yeah, ease are great to have in, uh, in your life. My brother is an E, he's a, he's a hand surgeon. He's an orthopedic hand surgeon. Wow. And, um, and I love, I love going biking with him because he all he, he, I know he's going to have an extra tube for him he'll have one for me he'll have sunscreen he'll have food not only for him but me <laughs> he's uh 
He's going to be prepared. Predictability and preparedness are huge for the e-brain. Yes. Always have to be prepared. The thing about it is that this does not change. And, and many people spend years and years and years beating their heads against walls that do not move. And, and so learning what is good about your temperament, what your temperament is, and then learning how to work with it. That is so true because learning that it's not going to change. This is who they are. This is who I am. And learning how to approach situations that way with respecting that, because even though we might want our children to be one way and we don't see that, why aren't they thinking like me? It's their innate personality and it's not going to change. So how do we adapt? But now let's jump into that seventh principle, the final one, healthy sexuality. Yes, hugely important in a relationship and and an area where many, many couples really struggle. And the real the real key um, in and what in the Healthy and Happy program and what what I talk a lot about is how to make sex safe. Um, you know, there's some important differences between men and women and, and how we function sexually. Um, and there's there's a very every every sex if you remember the when we were talking about attachment when i become disorganized emotionally that's an attachment moment well attachment moments are also when i'm really happy um when i'm turned on when i have a dream when i'm when i'm feeling really up too those are also attachment moments so every sexual encounter is an attachment moment and so being willing to be vulnerable, to vulnerably turn toward the other person and responding with sensitivity and availability in attachment moments is really important. Sexual desire is, is, huge, is a hugely important um, variable and one that many women struggle with. And, um, and there's a lot of confusion about sexual desire and how it works. One of the, one of the differences between men and women is that most most men feel close to their partners as a result of having sex. When we sexually connect, men feel close and connected. For women, most women want to have sex as a result of feeling close. So when I feel close to you, I want to have sex with you. And, And so when there's a conflict most men will think, well, let's have sex so that we can reconnect. There's this distance between us. We need to have sex so that we can reconnect and be close again. And for the woman, it's like, heck no. It's the last thing I want to do because I don't like you right now. There's distance between us. (laughs) That is a lot. And that's a lot of amazing information. And what I love the most about it is how it connects back to attachment, back to resource management. Everything is connected. So if someone wants to sign up for your program, become healthy and happy, how can they sign up? Go to denimslade.com um, and, uh, and you, there are links there. I, I've got classes you can buy and, and take independently. You can sign up for live classes. Um, there are, there's group coaching. Uh, there's individual coaching. I have a wait list, but there are lots of different options that you can do to to be able to learn, you can, you can go and, and take the core assessment and um, find out what your core is. 
Um, so there are lots of different things. You can check us out on Instagram, become.healthy and um, .happy on, on Instagram or Denim L. Slade PhD on Facebook. Um, so you can follow us and see, see our stuff. Dr. Slade, thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing all of this information. I learned so much. I had so much fun listening to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure.